0: Welcome back to Murder and My Family, True Crimes. I'm Sandy.
1: Hi, I'm Joe, Sandy's husband.
0: If you've listened to my previous podcast, you met my daughter, Katie, and my son, Kyle, and now you've met my husband, Joe, rounds out the whole family. Hence, Murder and My Family. Every week, I'm trying to convince somebody in my family to record with me. That's honestly the hardest part about doing a podcast. Nobody wants to record with me.
1: Katie loves it.
0: <laughs> Nobody wants to record with me. Anyway, I did start um, an email, murderandmyfamily at gmail.com. So, if anybody out there would like to email me who they'd like to hear more of or some crimes that they'd like me to research, I would love to look into some of them.
1: Just don't pick me.
0: <laughs> you can pick him. He's the easiest to convince because he's an adult. <laughs> Um, the crime that I'm doing today was actually recommended to me by a friend. So I'm very excited to do it, um, to let her know more about the incident. And I, it's one of my coworkers and I got my information from lawgestia.com, upi.com, apnews.com. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the town where it took place because it's kind of significant. Um, It was in Foster, Rhode Island, which is a really small town of about 4,600 people in the northwest corner of Rhode Island. And in 1993, this is when this murder took place and there was about 4,000 people at the time. So It's a pretty small town. It is described as safe town where everybody knows everybody. Everyone is very friendly and the neighborhood kids all play together. You can visit the only covered bridge in Rhode Island there or visit the highest point of Rhode Island in Jeremuth Hill. There is lots of farmland, and it's pretty rural with lots of trails and hiking and walking. Plus, the schools are very good. It is said to be a place where you would want to raise a family. My friend says this murder really put the town in an upheaval, being a small town and a big murder. Uh, And she didn't realize the case was solved, and she talked about how all the local rumors went about about who could have committed the crime.
1: Yeah, they don't have newspapers. They have rumors.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the news, is the rumors. (laughs) So before I get into the crime, about three months before the actual crime was committed, there was an incident which was very relevant to the crime. So I'm going to go into that first. On January 9th, 1993, there was a suspicious car spotted at the police headquarters in Foster, Rhode Island. Now, remember, it's a small town.
1: Yeah, what is a suspicious car? That, uh, well, that's like an excuse to pull a car over.
0: Well, it in a big town, maybe. Now, in a small town, in a big town, it'd be a very different thing. In a yep. small town, what it was is uh, a, a car pulled into the lot and turned its headlights off and then left. So the police found it suspicious. That doesn't typically happen there. So they went out to the parking lot, made sure that none of the police cars were damaged. And then Robert Sibetta, a 24-year-old police officer who'd been on the job two years, followed the suspicious car and pulled it over to ask what they were doing. When Sabetta pulled the car over and approached it, there were some unkind words exchanged between him and the people in the
1: car. So he must have knew them small town they know everybody
0: well that's what i was kind of thinking so i know it was young boys in the car i don't know how many and exactly who but it being that sabetta is only 24 himself i he had to know he them. had to know yeah. them and it doesn't really say what the unkind words were they could have been pretty bad
1: yeah well it's probably because they don't look at him as a police officer
0: that's true So this is one thing as I was reading it. I thought about how you and I agree on this subject, that when a police officer pulls you over...
1: Yes, sir. No, sir. Treat him with respect.
0: Yeah, you need to be very respectful to them. And if you're having an issue with them, you think that something wasn't happening that should be happening, you deal with it after the fact. It can be a very uncomfortable situation to be pulled over, and he is your superior and you need to be respectful he, of them and their job. He's an
1: authority figure who goes to work every day not knowing if he's going to come home. That's right. So, you know, based on things that occur, you got to be, if you're respectful, sometimes they'll let you go, too. So it's, it's just let them do their job. Don't yeah,
0: and us. as you said before, that if, you, if you're nice, if things might actually go your way.
1: Kill them with kindness. It yeah. works.
0: We love that saying, kill him with <laughs> kindness. So, yeah, that's something that you and I have always agreed on. Be respectful to your police officers. Yep. Uh, Frank Sherman, who was 16 years old and a passenger in the car, was taken out of the car. <laughs> I don't know why they use that wording, taken out of the car. I can only assume that it was forcefully.
1: Like they dragged him out the window.
0: By the words <laughs> that they chose, yeah, but the art, yeah, the article didn't say exactly. They just said taken out. So the other witnesses in the car said Sabetta hit Frank in the face with a flashlight and knocked out a couple of his teeth.
1: Well, it's clear this guy shouldn't be a police officer. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably not. Only two years in the job and he's hitting a 16-year-old kid yeah. with a flashlight flashlight in the face hard enough to knock out his teeth. So he's got a little bit of a temper. He
1: has an issue. Yeah.
0: So Sherman or Frank Sherman's mother lodged a complaint with the police department and Sabetta was suspended without pay and criminal charges were lodged against him. On March 23rd, so a couple months after the incident, a grand jury indicted him for assault with a dangerous weapon, the weapon being the flashlight. He was arraigned and released on $10,000 personal recognizance.
1: Career's over.
0: Possibly. It was a huge blow to him. His father was an ex-police officer, and he always wanted to be one, too. So the trial was set for October of that same year, and I'm not sure if it was a second or third-degree assault, but if it was second-degree, it's possible he could do jail time himself. Uh, Third-degree is just a misdemeanor and no jail time. However, either way, if he's found guilty, as you said, his career is over, if he's found guilty. so
1: I'm guessing he, he wouldn't be a police officer in a small, that small town anyhow. Because, yeah,
0: that could be, too.
1: You know, if you're the chief, you're like, yep, let's find some other place for you to be.
0: Yeah, you have to know the politics, I'm sure, of the town as well. That's correct. So this was devastating to him, and he was ordered to have no contact with any of the witnesses, Um, in the alleged assault. So now for the actual crime. On April 13th, about three months after the beating and about three weeks after the grand jury indictment, Sabetta walked into Wilson Auto Body Garage to get his revenge. Frank Sherman, the 16-year-old boy that was beaten up, and his brother Charles Sherman, who's 17, were working on their cars in the garage. Along with them that night were their cousins, Daryl Drake, 19, Michael Clausen, I think he's 19, but it didn't say, and a friend, Jeremy Bullock, 19. I know some of these kids were in the car the night of the incident. I don't know which ones, if a couple, all, I'm not sure. It just alluded to that, but I don't know for sure. On this night, April 13th, 1993, they were all hanging out the garage, just working on their cars. And the owner of the shop was just a local guy in town
1: yeah wondering how do you let kids that age have he go own shop. is it a garage at the house or where is it's, that kid?
0: well i don't know i don't think it was at his house i think um so it was a business i think it was a business but okay. they because yeah it was an auto body garage
1: so he gave him space to just, let him work that's on
0: right so okay. small town keep the kids out of trouble use yep. the space it's open why not so good guy uh so the sherman's brothers had a black lab named chocolate and he was outside the garage that night chocolate was barking non-stop so charles told his younger brother frank to see what he was barking at as frank went outside to check on the dog clausen one of the cousins went under his car to fix his transmission and drake the other cousin was sitting in the front seat of his car working on his radio Claussen- So two separate cars Two separate cars. They each have their own car, it sounds like. Okay. Clausen later testified he heard something like fireworks and lots of feet shuffling in the dirt. Then he heard what he thought were gunshots uh, inside the garage. He heard Bullock, the friend, make noises like he was in pain, like something was hitting him. Clausen was still hiding under his car, so he peeked out to see what was going on. He could see Bullock's feet sticking straight up like he had fallen backwards. Claussen scooted back under the car and then heard someone say, You're going to die. Then he heard another shot. Then the perpetrator walked around the passenger side of Claussen's car. That is where Charles, the older brother, was sitting. Claussen heard two more gunshots and heard Charles gasp. Then he Saw the casings land on the ground near the per- perpetrator's boots. Look,
1: so it means you casing is an automatic weapon, not a revolver.
0: Yeah, I know nothing about guns, so I sure.
1: Don't I don't either. I'll admit that.
0: I have no idea. Um,
1: Look, that's stupid. Like that's what I'm saying. It's, let's leave evidence behind.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, if you go into a place that you have a okay. motive and shoot them, you're not really thinking. So, Klaus and the, the kid under the car never saw the guy's face, but he did see his pant legs, which he described looking like a foster police officer's pants. A dark blue pant with a light blue stripe down the side. And he was wearing black boots
1: traditional police officers' uniform. Yeah. And I, I can't, up here.
0: I can't imagine how terrified they, he must have been. Like, if he, I'm sure he knew about the incident before, but then a police officer beat up his buddy. And now he's in a garage and he thinks the police officer's in there shooting up kids.
1: Well, that brings, again, it brings me to the question of you're a police officer and you're the one doing the shooting. Why are you leaving shell casings all over the place? Aren't <laughs> you? Like, I'm just, I, I'm only one based on shows we watch on television, That's but, you true. know, yeah, it's yeah, kind of like. Yeah.
0: I hadn't thought of that. Uh, it, clearly he hadn't either. either. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> so Clausen stayed under the car for a long time until he thought it was safe. When he emerged from under his car, he saw Charles had been shot in the face. He ran outside and saw Bullock lying face up on the ground. So he jumped into his car and drove home and told his parents what had just happened. And they called the police. Now, Drake, the one um, that was working on his radio at the time, he testified that as he was working on his radio when he heard a bang so loud it shook the garage. When he looked up, he saw a man with glasses, short hair, and dark skin pointing a gun right at him. The man was only six to seven feet away as he shot at Drake. Drake tried to jump out of the way. He jumped across the console of his car onto the floor, then out the passenger door onto the ground next to the car. Then he saw the man running to the back of the shop and Drake stated the man was wearing black boots. He saw Bullock lying on the ground, so Drake just started running. I think he got pretty lucky that the perpetrator went to the back of the garage so he could run out the front. It wasn't until then that he realized he'd been shot. He was having difficulty breathing, so he stopped for a few minutes. Then he heard the car leaving the garage so he hid in a ditch. Then he saw what he described as a light-colored Grand Marquis or Crown Victoria speed past him with the lights off. He was able to muster up the energy to run to a neighbor's house to get help and tell them what happened at the garage. He was taken by ambulance to a hospital. He'd been shot in the chest.
1: Jeez. So adrenaline got him this far. Definitely.
0: Yeah, because he was having a very difficult time breathing. When he arrived at the hospital, he picked Sabetta from a photo lineup. So remember, he saw him six to seven feet away from him.
1: So they put the police officer in the lineup, his picture. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, and I, I didn't really say. I don't know if the other kid had already reported to the police. That they thought it was a
1: police officer? Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I don't know. It'd be, it, it didn't give a timeline of those two incidents together.
1: That the police would put a fellow officer's picture in the lineup. Not normal procedure. So you're correct. They must have been something.
0: Yeah. So the local um, police arrived at the garage where the murders had taken place. And the police immediately put out an alert for Sabetta's car that he drove based on all the information that they had received at that point. So at that point, they had gotten it from both the kids. Yep. At about 3.30 a.m. on April 14th. So about three and a half hours after the murders occurred, Cranston, Rhode Island police pulled sabetta over and arrested him without incident which means that they might expect to fight back but he didn't he just pulled over and surrendered
1: he He was he didn't want to take off fellow officers
0: probably he was charged and arraigned on three counts of murder and one count of assault with the intent to commit murder when he was being questioned his father came to the police station and said there had to be more to the story than what had come out so far he said quote, "Being an ex-police officer, I am very strong. I hope to God he didn't do it."." Unquote. He was very emotional, and I feel so horribly for that father. You think that you've raised a, a wonderful child. He's a police officer like you were. He got into it, and now
1: He murders three people. He's and-
0: charged with this. So the police didn't immediately find the gun used for the murders. However, two weeks after the murders, a gun was found by someone fishing in Groton, which isn't that close. The serial number had been shaved off and the barrel of the gun had been altered. There were six spent cartridges in the gun.
1: That means it's a revolver. Okay, interesting.
0: The gun was similar to one Sabetta had while he worked for the Foster Police Department. They said a .357 Magnum.
1: 357 Magnum.
0: Yeah, I've heard of that.
1: Yeah, that's Dirty Harry. <laughs> that's, you know, or a .44 Magnum. Those are, that's
0: 357 Magnum. Uh, yes, the I've heard of that. Made, made okay. those famous
1: in the 70s and 80s.
0: <laughs> so the police had some work ahead of them to determine that this was the gun um, and prove the gun that they found in the water was the same gun that was used for the murder.
1: And if just one more thing on the like gun, I don't know guns, but let's base it on what we see on TV. The boy who was shot and survived, they, it doesn't put like a little hole in you. Those are big guns. Like that's a.
0: Yeah. And he testified when he got to the hospital. Like, so I, wow. yeah, I don't, I mean, he had to have gone in for surgery pretty quickly. You would yep. think? Wow. So they found metal shavings at Sabetta's home, which they had examined And it was determined to be similar composition to the material of the gun's barrel, which that alone is not very solid evidence. But in conjunction, it is helpful. So they pulled spent bullets from a tree, which Sabetta had done some practice shooting before. And a ballistics expert expert testified that they were fired from the gun they found in the water in Groton. So that's pretty solid evidence.
1: So this is a police officer who left gun shavings at his house, spent bullet casings at the scene.
0: And you want to think, you, you want to know he's, you team? keep thinking police officer. I keep thinking 24 year old kid.
1: I get that. But there's training that goes through the academy and stuff like that. And, you know, I, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah.
0: Well, in, on April 17th, 1993, he actually tried to kill himself in jail. While most of the inmates were at breakfast, he took a disposable razor and cut his neck several times. And he was taken to Rhode Island Hospital, and he was fine. There was no major injury. So on June eleventh, 1994, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the murders and 25 years for assault to commit murder. The judge said the killings were, quote, deliberate, Systematic and cold blooded. According to deathpenaltyinfo.org, Rhode Island abolished the death penalty in 1852. And it was one of the first states to actually abolish it. The verdict that he received gives an instant appeal, like they don't have to file for yeah. it, they just automatically give an appeal. And he lost his appeals, they were all denied in 1996. So in 1993, the families of the three killed filed a lawsuit against Sveta and the police, uh, foster police department. And I found this more on like a blog. So I'm not 100% sure how accurate it is. I couldn't find it in any news articles. But they said that they filed a lawsuit for neglect for failing to collect firearms and police uniforms issued by the foster police department. And the Foster Police Department says they did collect it all. So I don't know what's true and what's not.
1: Yeah, but police officers, as we have a friend who's one, can, they buy their own. Like, yeah. So that he could have extra clothes. Same thing with a gun. I'm pretty sure that the issue gun is not going to be a 357 Magnum on your hip. This isn't yeah. the 70s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or a movie. <laughs>
0: I, it sounds good to me. <laughs> I don't know. So, but it said they were seeking
1: compensatory
0: Thank you, compensatory damages, but no amount was given. So yeah, I don't know.
1: There's an NDA sign there because I yeah. don't want to know.
0: So um, that really is the story. But I did just want to say all the victims again, because um, I wanted to try to find more information on them, but there wasn't a lot out there. Uh, but they were so young. I feel like this helps their memory live on. There was Frank Sherman, who was 16. His brother, Charles Sherman, who was 17. His, uh, their cousin, Jeremy Bullock, who was 19. Daryl Drake, which was 18. Actually, Jeremy Bullock was a friend. Daryl Drake, 18. And Michael Clawson, who I believe was 18 or 19 as well. So a couple, two of them are still alive. And I believe they're still in that area. I don't know much about them though. So that is the Foster Rhode Island Auto Body Murders. What do you think of your first podcast? It's
1: pretty good. I like this. This was fun.
0: It's not too bad, right? No, you get to not. learn about so many of these crimes. I know. I feel like
1: I should read ahead of time, so I'm ready. <laughs> I know.
0: That's true. Maybe next time I'll let you read ahead Maybe. of time.
1: All right.
0: <laughs> so thank you once again for listening to Murder and My Family True Crimes. I hope to see you listening to this episode. Until next time, bye-bye. bye
1: bye. Bye.